welcome to Stepping Off Now, a podcast about how to live your creative best life. If you're feeling creatively stuck, burned out, or like you're not fulfilling your true creative potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Kendra, a social scientist and writer. I spent decades feeling creatively unfulfilled while I pursued conventional life goals, culminating in severe burnout that took years to recover from. This podcast chronicles my journey in real time as I find my way back to my creative center and seek to live my own creative best life. I discuss topics like harnessing the intuitive creative process, using creativity to manage mental health, and sorting through all the external pressures and expectations to figure out what you really want. My hope is that you'll find inspiration and solace here. You can find out more by visiting my website, KendraPatterson.com. Now on to the show. Hi, everybody. So that is possibly my finalized version of my new introduction. Uh, I'm going to set it to music, so I won't have to read it every time. (laughs) And that way people can fast forward through it once they've heard it the first time and may not want to listen to it every time. As you probably noticed, I am doing an interview episode today. I I'm still not sure whether or not I'm going to restart my interview series. I have a couple ideas about where I want to go with interviews if I do do that. But for now, I'm still on hiatus with interviews. But I did want to have my sister back on because she's had a lot of exciting stuff happen recently in her life. And she's a competitive cyclist. As you will probably know, if you listen to the interview I did with her last year, she's had a great year so far this year. And she's been winning a lot of races. Most recently, she won the GFNS National Championship race, and she is the US champion now. She's been crowned the US champion. So I wanted to have her come on to talk a little bit about success and failure in the athlete's life. Because I feel that even though it would seem that there's a huge difference between being an athlete like her and being an artist like myself, there are also a lot of similarities between our lives. And I thought it would be an interesting conversation to kind of discuss those differences and similarities and how we both deal with living lives where we're pretty much carving our own, our own paths and working outside of systems and institutions a lot of the time in terms of trying to make a living for ourselves. We're both working on businesses associated with our primary activities, which for her are the cycling and me is the writing. And there are a lot of ups and downs in the path towards making a sustainable living this way. And both of our lives are defined by what I would call a decoupling of effort and reward, at least monetary reward. In other words, we spend a lot of time working on stuff that doesn't directly earn us money, but we hope will contribute to us making a living in some way. And that's really different from the way life goes if you have a regular job. You are directly compensated monetarily for the effort you put in at work. So we talk about how to maintain enthusiasm over time when you're living as we are. And we talk about different types of success and rewards that help keep us going on these challenging paths that we've chosen for ourselves. I think that this conversation will be useful for anyone who is contemplating or is engaged now with alternative or unconventional life paths and is feeling discouraged. Because the thing about pursuing an unconventional life path is that not only is the way that you live different, but the rewards that come are different too. And I think that that's something that people don't expect necessarily going in. They expect that the rewards are going to be similar to the rewards that you get when you're living a conventional life path. And when those rewards don't come, that can feel like failure. And I think these feelings of failure can be compounded by all these stories we hear about people who 
quit their job and became a travel blogger or whatever the thing is that they did and ended up reaping the same rewards, but more so, right, (laughs) as a person living a conventional life. So in other words, they are making a lot of money, but they're also living this amazing life. And that's not always how it goes. I've almost gotten to the point where I can't actually listen to stories like that because they're one in a thousand. And most of us who are living unconventional lives, we're kind of toiling in obscurity. And we have to come to new understandings of what a successful and fulfilling life looks like. So I think that that's the underlying theme of this conversation with my sister. And we share very similar ideas about that. Just a note on the first part of this conversation, we spend some time talking about the types of races that my sister does. They're Grand Fondo races, and there are a couple different kinds that (laughs) she schools me on that I wasn't clear on. So you'll hear me in real time trying to understand two different types of Grand Fondo races that she's involved with. But it's a pretty clarifying conversation for anyone who doesn't know much about the cycling world or life as an athlete. Also, another note, I do not do my usual summation at the end of this interview. I have decided to let the interview speak for itself. Now let's get to it. Jill, welcome back to the Stepping Off Now podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be a guest again. I think I last had you on a little over a year ago, and I got so much positive feedback for that episode because people really liked our dynamic. And especially I heard from women who have sisters, and they just loved that episode. (laughs) That's awesome to hear. Yeah. So I thought that I would have you back on to talk about your recent exciting news So why don't you just tell people? (laughs) Okay, well, I am a Grand Fondo national champion of the U.S. Congratulations, Jill. Thank you. Thank you. It was a a great win for me. I'm very happy. I'm incredibly excited for you. Like I always tell people, my sister is so much cooler than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Not true. Definitely not true. Uh, But tell us a little bit about what that means. Okay, so they have the national championship race. It's part of a series. They have many races uh, throughout the year in the U.S. of Grand Fondo. And you have to do one to qualify for the national championship. So I qualified in a race a a few months ago, and then I was able to join the national championship. And then it's actually ranked by age group. So I was competing against the, the women in my age group, and I won in my age group. So that is why I am the national champion. But I also won overall of of all the women. So I'm very, very happy about that, too. Wow. So you beat out women who were significantly younger. Yes, yes. And I know my days of that that are limited. You know, I won't be able to do that for too much longer. So anytime I can do that, I'm very, very happy. And how old are you now? I'm 41. It's like I always say, the 40s is a magnificent decade for women. It truly is entering our prime. That's my belief. I I agree with that. And I talk with some of my friends who are also around our age, and, and they say the same thing. What exactly is the GFNY? Okay, so GFNY, that's a different series than the Grand Fondo National Series. The National Series is sanctioned by USA Cycling, and that's the one that gives you the national title, which I just won. So GFNY is a different series, and they have their own world championship because that is a worldwide series. And I have competed in that world championship in New York. Uh, three times. Uh, First year I got second, second year I got first, and this year, third year, I got third. So I have covered all podium spots for GFNY. Okay, so GFNY is different from the Grand Fondo you just won. That is correct. But before the Grand Fondo I just won, I was also in France doing a lot of the GFNY races. Okay. So I've been dabbling in both of those series this year. So GFNY is Grand Fondo too, though. Yes. Yeah, so the difference between them, and this is interesting, the Grand Fondo National Series, GFNS, 
they are timed segments. And so that's like a hundred mile race. So that's typical of Grand Fondo. You have a longer race, uh, but within that race, you're actually only racing four segments. So that is what I just did and won the national title for. I, I did the hundred mile race, but on those four segments, my cumulative time was the fastest among all the women overall and in my age group. GFNY Grand Fondo New York series, that is a little different in that it is 100 miles. So that's typical of all Grand Fondos uh, right around that. They're, they're longer. They can be 60, but usually they're, they're often around 100. That is different because it's not time segments. It's, it's really just sort of a road race start to finish. And the, the first person across that finish line is the winner. Got it. So you have been the GFNY world champion. Correct. A few years ago. Yes, that was in 2019. And then they had to stop for COVID for a few years. So the next race they had was 2022 this year. And I got third place this year. And now you are the Grand Fondo national champion. Different series. Yes. Is one or the other a bigger deal? Or are they the same? Uh, it's, it's hard to say. It's a really great deal to be world champion in the grand GFNY series. Um, people who follow that series, that was a really big deal for them. Uh, and, and you are competing against women of all countries. So it can be very high level in that race. Uh, the GFNS, the grand Fondo national series, that is very special to me because that is sanctioned by USA cycling. That's like the governing body in the U S. So to me, that is a big deal. I mean, that, to wear that Stars and Stripes jersey in my own country, that um, because of that sanctioning body, for me, that that's very special. And listeners, if you want to see my sister wearing the Stars and Stripes jersey, you can visit her Instagram, uh, which is Jill Patterson Cycling, correct? Correct. And you do have a photo up of that. I do, yes. Yeah. yeah. So just one more thing about the Grand Fondo, and I'm learning all this for the first time, really, because it's so confusing, all these different types of races. Grand Fondo is like a niche event type of thing, right? So how does it differ from other types of cycling races? Yes, it is sort of a niche event. I would say one of the bigger differences is that it is often a mixed event. All the Grand Fondos I've done, you might start with women in your own corral, but you are allowed to ride with the men. You can ride with anybody. So you're riding with all levels, all ages, both men and women. And to me, that's that's super fun because you can join a Peloton or the group that is so many people. You know, you could be riding with a group of like 60 people. And as a female on the East Coast, our races tend to be small, you know, fewer women come. So if I do an all women's race in the traditional sense, I might be riding with 10 people. And that's a very different feeling. And you have to use different tactics for that. So I kind of like that rush of, of starting a race and riding with a lot of people. Uh, and then Grand Fondos are a little unique in that uh, they do tend to be very long. A lot of the races uh, that are not Grand Fondo are criteriums. And those are very, very short. It's like just one hour. It's very technical. It's often on a slightly flatter course. And that's not the type of riding I do. I don't do fast, technical, flat. Uh, and then you have road racing, which can be similar to Grand Fondo, but they tend to be a little shorter than Grand Fondo. You know, they can be 40, 60, 80 miles. Um, men's races tend to be longer, but women's racing uh, for for road racing in the U.S. is is typically not a hundred miles. So for me, the longer the course and the hillier the course, and Grand Fondos tend to be hilly, that suits me. So for me, Grand Fondo racing really suits my abilities, and and so that's why I can do well in them. Cool. So your recent wins, and just briefly tell us about the races that you won in France recently. You went to France for like three weeks. It felt like forever right? Yeah. Well, actually it ended up being five weeks. <gasps> I was supposed to go for like three to four. And then the opportunity came, the The people who organized the series, they told me, Hey, there's a third race. I was going to go for two races, which I did. And they told me there's a third race in a week and a half. And why don't you stay for that third race? And I was actually 
going to do the two races, then do a cycling camp with friends and go home. But that third race was was just a couple days after that cycling camp with friends. So I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. I'll stay. So I stayed on another week and a half and uh, yeah, ended up being five weeks in France. And you won those races. I won two of the races and I tied for second in the third race. Okay. Wow. So you've been on a pretty good winning streak. Yes, I have this year. It's been a good year for me. And it's funny because so many people just in the past week have said that to me. They're like, wow, you're having a great year. You're winning a lot. And I'm like, yeah, actually, yeah, I guess I am. Yeah. And a few years ago, you also had, I feel like, a pretty good year. But then you struggled a little bit last year. Yes. And so let's let's kind of delve into that and your feelings around these ups and downs. Do you see your cycling career as a progressive thing where you're seeking to win ever more races? Oh, um, at, if you had asked me that three or four years ago, I would have said yes. That was sort of my goal is to see how far I can get, to see how many races I can win. But actually, ironically, this year I'm winning a lot but that hasn't truly been my primary goal. Um, I've sort of let up on the performance goal a little bit just because I think I have seen my peak. Like I, I have metrics, I have power data, and I, I have noticed in the past few years it's not going up anymore. Like I, I think I've gotten to my highest power, and I also know I'm, I'm getting older, so the likelihood that I will reach another peak is very low. Like I'm either going to stay the same in physical ability or my level is going to go down. So because of that, I I don't think it's fair to put that goal on myself of, of like keep winning, you know, like it's, it's going to be harder and harder and I'm going to have to devote more and more time to stay at that level. And I'm getting tired. I've been doing this for years. I don't think I can maintain that level of mental focus and training. So I am sort of redefining what I want to do in cycling now. With that in mind, what does success look like for you at this point in your cycling career? In my cycling career right now, I'm really at that transitional stage where I'm trying to turn it from where I define success primarily by racing before. I'm trying to focus more and more on my coaching business and move the success to that. Now, it's not like I'm suddenly giving up on racing and I don't want to be successful at racing. I do. But before where it was like a very personal reason, I wanted to see how much I could do, what was my physical ability. Now it's more, I want to do well because I know people see that and that is almost like a resume builder and that's going to directly help my business. So it's no longer personal. It's more just almost financial and and for my career. And you recently started seeing an influx of coaching clients for the first time. Uh, and to the point where you're now actually making a sustainable living. That is correct. And how long have you been working on your coaching business? Probably about four years. Um, the first year was very, very slow. I mean, it was it was like a little side hobby. And I sort of opened the business as a private business. And then I think I had, I coached one person that first year, you know, and I, and I focused most of my energy on development. I studied, I, I got things in line, like made the LLC, just, just built the outline of the business. And then through that, I was introduced to a coaching company. And so I joined that coaching company as sort of a contractor for about two years. And again, I felt like that was sort of an internship for me. You know, I wasn't making a hundred percent of the money I was bringing in. Some of it went to the coaching company, but they, they were allowing me to do their camps. They were training me. I was learning from the other coaches. It was a great environment to kind of take those baby steps and they were finding me clients. So I did not have a full-time load. It was still a very part-time job. I was working two other jobs at the time. So I was juggling three jobs. And then in, uh, I guess it was um, over a year and a half ago now, I decided that I needed to branch off on my own and it was time to part ways from that coaching company and just go on my own as a coach. And that was a very scary step because you don't have 
that sort of umbrella of comfort of a company to find you clients and help you deal with all, you know, the behind the scenes paperwork. But it was actually a pretty easy transition for me into just being my own coaching company. Like it's just me. I am Jill Patterson uh, cycling coaching. So it's working well for me. That's really exciting to hear. And I hadn't realized it had been quite as long, four years as as you say, look like the way you describe it, it sounds like you had all these, the strategic plan to do things a certain way. And, and I know that having been with you along that journey, that it wasn't that way at all as you went through it. It, it was never that way. And in my life, that's sort of how I live, even though people would think that I have all these strategic plans, because in general, I, I've had good successes in my life and I've accomplished goals and everything. But I have never been the type to sort of have this vision of, of what I want in the future. If you ask me as a kid, what do you want to be when you grew up? I didn't know. I mean, I didn't even know when I started coaching that I wanted to be a full-time cycling coach. That was not my goal. I maybe didn't even think that was possible to make it work financially. So it's just sort of, you know, I kept an open mind throughout and, and I did the best I could with wherever I was along that journey. And then if I felt that I could take the next step up, I did. And I did it in a way that was sort of predictable and controlled and safe. Like I didn't jump into my own coaching and and dropping the coaching company that I was with until I felt that there was a good chance that I could have a big enough client base to support myself. And then even that said, I was still working other part-time jobs here and there for a while um, just because I didn't want to let those go, you know, that they were much more sure and guaranteed thing than coaching at the time. Yeah, I think it's neat how you can look back at your life and tell any kind of story you want that makes it seem like it it's a coherent narrative, but really it wasn't that way as you experienced it going through. And it's similar for me. I don't have any kind of strategy. And I think it's so funny that we're, we're so similar in this way that we're neither one of us are huge risk takers necessarily. And I, I think these kinds of characteristics are very context based. So I've been a risk taker in the sense that I went and lived overseas in multiple countries without really thinking about it much at all. It's like, I wanted to do it, so I went and did it. And that's a huge risk. But within that larger risk, I had like a lot of control over the small details and particularly myself, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense, yes. Uh, That's how I do it. Like I take risks, but they're really not because I like the, the values that are most important to me, I'm still fully in control of. Right, and I think... This, there's something really important about this because both of us have chosen these, what would seem to be, to a casual observer, high-risk life paths with very little security. But what they don't see is the sort of internal control we exert over, primarily over ourselves and our day-to-day actions and the way that we handle things, and also the massive amounts, I think, of mental type of planning that goes on as we, we journey through the smaller portions of a larger plan. Yes, that that's so well said. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting that you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. And uh, I guess for me, I just sort of assume that everyone operates that way because that is my way and that's the only thing I know. But no, <laughs> people don't operate <laughs> that way. I think there are true risk takers out there who really do put things on the line and really have no idea if it's going to work out. And I was never in that position. So yes, there was some fear in my life choice, but I always had, you know, if this doesn't work out, there was always another option. There was always plan B, plan C. So, you know, it was never a truly scary step to take. Right, right. There's always a a fallback plan. Yes. Or three. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's uh, that's interesting to discover that similarity. This is something I think about a lot because you're an athlete and I'm an artist, and yet there are so many similarities between those two fields. I believe in terms of the uh, well, one thing that I think we share is we both get into the zone or get into the flow, 
Yes, for sure. A hundred percent. When I, the, the best races I have or performance, that's when I'm in the flow. If I'm not in the flow, I probably will not be doing my best. Exactly. Uh, and it's the same with any uh, creative activity that I do as well. And I mean, I, I think that's similar to anything in life. The, the more you can reside in that space of flow, the better outcomes are going to be. Not in the least because they're going to feel better to you, kind of regardless of what the actual outcome is, right? Yeah. 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 Agreed. Another thing I think we share across our seemingly vastly different uh, life paths or life activities is that in order, we both have to dedicate substantial amounts of time to something that actually doesn't make us any money directly. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, my racing doesn't make me money. I, it's fun. I enjoy it, but I spend way more money than I'm making on that. Uh, the social media, the videos I produce, you know, that there's no direct money made from that. Uh, um, but it's interesting because I kept trucking away at those for years and years thinking, okay, this is going to help my coaching. It's going to bring me athletes and clients. But I didn't know. I wasn't sure. And, and I did it for years. And just in the past few weeks, I'm starting to see how it has brought me athletes and how it has helped my business and how it has ultimately or will bring me money. And uh, that, that's a great feeling. You know, I have athletes come to me and say, hey, I want to sign up for coaching with you. This this was just the past week or two. I've had several people come to me and say, I've followed you on social media for years. I love the videos you make. Uh, you're winning races. I want to be like you. Can I do coaching with you? And it's so, it's such a great feeling to know that all that time, all that effort, because honestly, social media and videos, that, that doesn't come naturally to me. That that is not how if I could naturally choose my time, I wouldn't be doing it. But I did it because I felt like it would help my business. Well, now I'm seeing that, yes, it has helped my business. So that's a wonderful feeling. This idea that you can continue to do something month after month, year after year, and actually not really see any kind of reward, certainly not substantial reward and often no reward at all, I think really goes against what we're, maybe it goes against human nature to some extent, but also it goes against what we're taught. We're taught that we're supposed to reap rewards when we when we put in effort. And that's not always the case, or it's often not the case, uh, I find, in the life of a creative. And as you found for years and years, what kept you going? What what defined your persistence over time in, in doing something you didn't really even enjoy that much? Well, because the framework of it, I enjoyed. I love riding my bike and I love doing what I do. So it was sort of almost this, it started as almost this desperate way of how can I keep doing what I love doing? And one way was I can be a cycling coach. I can share what I know and, and I can keep riding my bike. And that gives my riding a purpose. It was almost an addiction. Like I just couldn't stop. I loved it so much. So it's like, how can I turn that addiction into something worthwhile besides just for selfish, feel good reasons? And so, yes, I mean, I, I did kind of struggle along with without, you know, rewards, but Ultimately, I was being rewarded by the endorphins and the feel-good feelings throughout. So I can't say it was without those rewards. Yeah, I think you nailed it there. And that's exactly what I'm always saying, too, in my own work, that if you don't enjoy it, I mean, that has to become the reward, right? Yes. Because outward successes come and go, like you've discovered with races. You sometimes win them, you sometimes don't. And as you've said to me before, the excitement over a win passes really quickly. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, you know, people think, oh, you're a national champion. That's great. It's going to lead to great things. And maybe for a week, the excitement's bubbling. But I've learned over time that these bigger wins, you know, I, I have had some really big wins. It doesn't necessarily lead to very obvious good things, um, but in retrospect, yes, like it does pave the way, but it's in, in little baby steps that you don't necessarily see as you're going through them. I will see, I'm sure this national championship will lead to something great, but I probably won't realize what that is until like two years from down the line. Yeah, exactly. And I think 
I think that's one of the hard things about starting a business like we have both done. Uh, you <laughs> you discover pretty quickly that even seemingly big wins don't actually have this follow-on effect of a, like a getting money flowing your way or whatever it is you're looking for in terms of your reward. And I think it's like the body of work that you build over time that really is the key factor. And that takes years and years and years, like not just a year, not just two years. You're discovering it took you four years I'm on coming into year, I've done done about two years of my own business. So that means maybe I have at least two more years <laughs> left, because I don't have like big wins as a as an artist and creative to to show to people, unless I get my book traditionally published, which I suppose would be super big win. But uh, in the creative world, this okay, so let's get into some of the differences. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I apologize in advance if I get complainy. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is totally so not fair. As a creative, my work is judged subjectively. And so it doesn't really matter how good I am or how hard I work. Whereas as an athlete, if you work really hard and you have that skill and that talent, you'll be judged quantitatively. You, you either win or you don't. You either have the numbers or you don't. There's, it's, it's not, there's not a lot of subjective evaluation there. So you have these things, these accomplishments and achievements you can point to in terms of other people and say, look, I did this, I can coach you, and maybe you can do that too. Whereas as a, an artist and creative, you mostly don't have those things. And even if I were to get my novel traditionally published, if that happens, it'll be mainly luck. It'll be the right person seeing it at the right time and really resonating w- with what I've written. Again, it's a judgment, a subjective judgment. So it's completely outside of my control, no matter how hard I work. That's very frustrating. Uh, yeah, and I've actually I've I've thought of that because I do often think about what you're doing and what I'm doing and how it's similar, but how it is so different be- because of those reasons that you just said. And and I'm I feel very lucky that. My, I do have the physical strength and the skills to win because I know that that is very public facing and that, you know, people, they also want to win. So they think if Jill can win, then she can tell me how to win. And so that directly feeds into my business. And I'm very lucky for that in sports the way it's structured now, you know, you go to races, they're public, you record every ride you do on the Strava social media platform. So everybody sees what you're doing every day and they follow it. They want to follow it. They want to see your rides. So I'm, I'm very in the public eye because of that. And you are not so much. I think your business, very creative, you know, you're thinking you're in your head. I mean, you have your podcast and this and that, but you don't have as many outlets to put yourself out there as I do. It's like everything I do, I'm, I'm doing a group ride. I mean, it's so easy to get out there in the public and be seen in the area I'm in. And then also it can even extend because of social media it can extend throughout the world. So I have a big audience. Yeah. A lot of what you do lends itself naturally to putting it out onto social media pretty directly. Whereas if I want to make a post on social media, I have to engage in a whole new active creative effort. And after spending however many hours on my podcast or my novel in a day, I don't have much left over for trying to game the social media system through figuring out what kind of creative post is going to (laughs) work, which nothing works, I've discovered. Uh, Social media is a bust, people. (laughs) Peak social media has come and gone. Uh, but in terms of this idea of persistence over time and playing the long game, sometimes I think that the long game really is a lifelong game, that it's not even about intermediate successes, but it's about ensuring that you're living your, your happy or best life every day. I would agree with that. And I think, but you have to be careful because I think the definition of what that is can change. And for me, I think one harsh reality in the world of athletes that maybe creatives don't deal with is that age is a huge factor. So I do feel like I'm sort of in a rush to, to pad my resume, let's say. I mean, 
like you said, winds are very out there. Winds resonate with people. Fastest times, it's a very sort of almost black and white industry. Like we want winners. And I know I'm not going to be able to win as much. Like, sure, maybe I could continue to win in my age group, but people don't really watch age groups. You know, we want to know who won the race overall, not who won like age 50 to 55. So in that sense, it's a very harsh industry. And so I do feel like I have a time limit and the, the things I'm doing right now, it's like I'm scrambling to get wins, to pad my resume, to help my business. And then the time will come in, in maybe another few years. It's very close where I won't be able to get those wins. So I'm going to have to pad my resume and, and do, do it another way. But by that point, I feel like maybe I, I will have reached enough athletes, that word of mouth and experience, and I'll have sort of my coaching itself will be my resume pattern. You know, like I will have proven myself as a coach, not just as an athlete. And then I can rely more on that. So then it will switch over. It is a lifelong goal, but you know, how I'm defining it, how I'm putting myself out there will change throughout my lifetime. Yeah. I think life is composed of different eras. And, uh, right now you're in sort of this private coaching era, winning races and private coaching era, do you have any vision? You say you don't really do visions of the future, mm. but you must have some kind of ideas that float through your head once in a while of where you'll be in a decade. Yeah, I do. I do. And someone just asked me this a week ago and my answer was somewhat vague. Uh, I, I said, I just wanted to step into the next stage gracefully because right now I sort of define myself and others define me as the, the woman who's fast and can win races And I know I won't be able to find myself that way in 10 years. So I'll have to have a new self-definition and others will have to have a new view of me and who I am. So I want to just take that transition well. Um, I think some people, it's very hard for them to see that decline in performance and they actually step out of the sport and they just leave it completely because they're like, well, I can't perform like I used to. I, I you know, that was what was important to me. Let me find other things. So I want to continue in cycling in 10 years. I want to be involved in it, but I see myself more as helping others to enjoy their journeys, you know, behind the scenes, planning races, coaching, helping, encouraging. Uh, I would love to be a mentor. I would love to maybe run cycling trips, you know, just everything I love about riding is not just competing. There's so much more. I want to help people find that. So that is sort of my long-term vision of being the cheerleader instead of the one on the field. Maybe we could go into business together and run like cycling slash writing retreats. <laughs> that would be very cool. We bring together athletes and creatives to... <laughs> Talk about their similarities and differences, just like we do. <laughs> wow, that, that's interesting. And then, you know, the the hour they have off, the cyclists will all go and exercise and the riders will all go and like think. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you think we do in our hour off? Jeez. <laughs> we just go and sit in a corner and think. <laughs> well, you know, athletes are similar. I think a lot of us, we're biking, but we're also thinking. That is our meditation. Thinking. Well, oh, yeah, on the bike, it's it's often a meditation for me. Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, like, if I'm in the zone and I'm competing, I'm, like, very focused. And I'm not thinking. But there are some rides where I'm just out there for three hours. I'm just looking, enjoying, you know, thinking about what I'm going to eat for dinner, thinking about life's bigger questions. It's very much a meditation on the bike sometimes. That's really interesting because, for me, I would say, like, a lot of – activities that I do during my day that aren't explicitly creative are my meditation times. uh, And I'll get ideas, creative ideas during those activities. Like often, this is weird, but I often, uh, I read a lot of stuff like around the internet. I spend a good portion of my day reading or watching TV. And I really enjoy watching television or, or streaming services rather because of the stories and artistic choices. And I think that that feeds me creatively. But I'll often watch with like almost like this lack of attention and my brain skittering all over the place. And I'll start think my mind will start wandering and I'll have to rewind three times to watch the scene again because my mind wandered. And usually I think people think that that's a bad thing. But I think for creatives, allowing our minds to wander like that is, is fodder for creativity. 
That's interesting because I, I definitely feel like I get that when I'm on the bike. And uh, then when I'm doing things like watching TV or cooking or something, I actually, I, I try to choose a program that's going to suck me in or I try to just focus on the cooking because I don't want my mind to wander. I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to be thinking about my business. I don't want to be thinking about biking this. Like for me, when I'm not biking, those activities are a hundred percent geared towards checking out and not working. So I, I kind of want my mind to be taken away and I don't want to think too deeply. So it's almost the opposite of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. For me, the stuff that I want to check out of is anything I have to do physically in the world. That's the stuff that exhausts me. So me checking out is going into my creative brain space Mm. and indulging in more thinking. Thinking is the addictive thing for me. Oh, wow. I mean, sometimes I want to escape it when it becomes like negative. Like that's the danger of it. Like I can go into really bad negative thought spirals. And that's associated with like my mental health challenges. But I'm always happy to go back retreat back into my own mind. Wow. I'm I mean, I love that. And that's what I'm doing. 90% of my day, like when I'm working, when I'm on the bike, I'm thinking, 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 and I do love that. But for me, my relaxation is not that. So, you know, I, I watch just stupid TV shows, like really dumb, you know, that have no um, <laughs> quality to them, but I love it because they put me in a, I mean, I'm still thinking watching them, but I'm thinking about things completely unrelated to, to my daily life, like things that don't matter to me at all. So that is my mental checkout, is not thinking. I've seen your uh, TV watching choices on my Hulu screen. No, We do not watch the same TV shows. No, we do not. <laughs> I'm like embarrassed to have people, yeah. Like I, I don't want people to know what I watch because like <laughs> it's very, if you, they know me, they'd be like, really, you're into those shows? And it's for that reason because it's it's like, it's almost like a am checking into a different culture completely. Like, the TV shows I watch, these are, this is not my daily like mode of operation. So for me, it's completely fascinating. I'm watching and thinking, are these people for real? Are they just like really good actors? Uh, You know, because I watch reality shows and, and (laughs) I always think like either they're brilliant and they know how to pull it off or they really are like that. (laughs) Yeah. So exactly. You watch reality TV and I can't watch reality TV. It's too uh, stressful for my highly sensitive nervous system. And it just, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't watch that stuff. I tend to watch uh, dramas, sometimes comedies, and I pay attention to acting because I think what actors do is magic. So, so maybe similar to what you're experiencing with reality TV. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm always flip flopping on are they acting or are they real? Yeah. Both, both. And actually, it's, it's funny you say you like watching the TV shows because I actually, I cannot watch dramas and and comedies and just like TV shows, because I'm sort of like, I know that it's fake. And I'm like, well, why am I watching this? Like this? I I don't know. I I can't see the point. Um, So it's funny that we're attracted to completely opposite things. Wow. You can't watch dramas because they're fake. Well, (laughs) I I mean, not not all like I could watch a good drama movie, but like a a TV show that goes over and over and over and repeats. I just, I've lost interest in that. Like I have, have no interest in watching every week this drama unfold because it's, I don't know. It's just, it's not real life. I can do it for a movie. That's fascinating. Do you read more nonfiction than fiction? Recently? Yes. So like, look, fiction is, it's like you're telling the truth through a fictional narrative. So it is the truth. I know. I get that. But I think, I'm so in athletics. It's so a hundred percent real that that's the way my brain is operating now. It's like, I I want that a hundred percent real. Like if I, another thing I love watching documentaries, much more fascinating to me than, than a fictional show. I just, I don't know. I uh, like, I get the fictional show. It's teaching you about life and modes of operation, but I get that through my junkie reality TV. I'm getting that, like, the, the life, and this is how people operate things through that. So I'd rather get it through junkie reality TV than fictional drama. Yeah, I mean, reality TV, I think, is like, it gives you the illusion that you're watching something that's, quote, real, but it's definitely not real, one hopes. 
<laughs> yeah. And that actually, that that's the appeal of it for me. Like I'm always kind of, it's like that internal debate of what's real and what's not. And, and how does that translate to real life and my life and what I see around with my friends. And I like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's kind of interesting, because that's exactly what I explore through my fiction, what's real and what's not. Um, and for me, it's all about like, I believe subjective realities are real, or essentially real might as well be real. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, the world is what what you see it as. And I don't want to take someone else's reality and diminish that because their reality is real for them. It's like someone with depression, you know, I don't look at them and see like, say, Hey, you have everything in your life. Things are good. Why are you so depressed? Why are you so sad? Like that is their reality. I'm going to respect that. You know, that's what they see and that's what they feel. So I'm not going to say that that's not real. Yeah. I mean, same. And I wonder if this has something to do with the way we were raised and our parents uh, have a lot of compassion for different realities. I think that when you're taught to be compassionate or accepting about differences, there is an aspect to that of having to accept that other people's realities are different from yours and the way that you experience things in life isn't universal and might be specific just to you or to your group. And going overseas and living overseas compounded this for me because cultural differences are differences in perception of perceiving and experiencing the world. And that to me is so fascinating that especially when you're, you're raised in a, a very science-oriented environment, as we all are pretty much in, in modern society, where we believe in the objective reality, right? We believe that there is. Ontologically speaking, we believe that there's an objective reality. It's really difficult to understand and accept that human beings can be so different in their perceptions and experiences of the world that they're essentially living in different worlds. That's one of the themes of my novel. Mm. And actually, it's, it's as you say that, that I think that, that's why reality TV sh- shows are such a draw to me, just to go back to that, because it is like dipping my feet in a completely different world, different perception, different reality, different, like, this is how these view these people exist. And you know, I'm learning about human nature through that. And it's, it's, I think you have to travel, you have to get outside of yourself to see these different viewpoints, you know, it's not going to be directly around you, you have to actually go out of your way to find it. Yeah, I think you do. Because I think in a sense, it's almost not natural to stretch your brain in such a way that you're trying to hold different realities and different truths in the same space. It, it, there is like a cognitive dissonance. And I think that that is one reason why I really do enjoy cycling because that brings people together in a community. We all come together because of cycling, but within that there is so much diversity. And so I do get to meet people of very different viewpoints and and ways of existing in the world. And, and uh, I, I think that sport can do that. It's, it's unique because in our daily lives, maybe we kind of gravitate towards the people who are, you know, more similar in in the way we operate. But with sport, that's sort of taken away because the similarity is the sport itself. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, I think, similar even with watching sports that people can come together and enjoy a spectacle that for at least momentarily makes differences not as visible or conflicts between people. Yeah, I, I would say momentarily. I mean, there's definitely, it's, you know, and, and not everything's like candy and roses in the cycling world. But um, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I find this industry so appealing and why I'm very happy to be working in it because it does bring people together in a sense. And people choose cycling because it makes them happy. You know, very few, like there are cyclists who are doing it to make money. It's a job to them, but I'm not really working with those cyclists. I'm working with the people who choose this because it is their hobby and their passion and their happiness. And so it's wonderful to be able to work with people who are happy to be doing what they're doing. You know, it's not like I'm selling insurance where people often, it's not a good reason that they're calling the insurance company. Uh, usually it's it's a good reason they're calling me to get coaching. 
One final topic I'd like to touch on is the idea that failure is part of the journey, but I don't think that that goes far enough, personally. Uh, I believe that in order to live the creative life, at least, which is my goal, that you have to become so friendly with failure that you recognize it as a constant and consistent part of life. And you kind of have to step beyond this idea that there's such things as successes and failures, uh, because otherwise you would just be constantly laid low by all the myriad of failures that you encounter along the way. What are your thoughts on that? So I I can define success and failure in terms of winning, losing, and that's a very obvious definition. But I can also define it in terms of how I feel. And last year, you mentioned how it was a rougher year for me. And that is true. I did a lot of different types of racing. I did a lot of different levels of racing. I kind of went outside my comfort zone of what I had been used to and dipped my feet in a lot of different things. And and I really learned, like I saw sort of what you would define as failures. Like I didn't do well in a lot of those races and, and that was very upsetting. But also I, I sort of just didn't feel like that was my path. Like it just didn't, feel like me. And same with social media for a point, you know, I was watching other people's social media in the industry and I was sort of thinking, Oh, I should do it this way. And I did a couple posts kind of trying to be like them and it just didn't feel right. And I've always lived my life just sort of doing me and doing what I want to do. And I've never really watched trends. I've never followed trends. I've just, whatever I wanted to do, I did. And last year I, I sort of tried to follow the trends and it just didn't feel like a match. And to me that felt like failure and I actually did kind of fail, fail by that definition of like not winning races. And, and so this year I, I just sort of gave it all up. I was like, I'm not going to try to make my social media look like all these other people. I'm going to make my YouTube videos, which are very low tech and, you know, maybe boring, but lo and behold, I make those videos and, and a lot of people like I've tapped into a, a different audience that I never expected to. And it really appeals to them. So by doing what I wanted to do, what felt right to me, I did find a niche. I just didn't know what that niche was going to be. I, I couldn't have predicted it. And so that was a success. And same with racing. I just felt I, I, I went back to originally, I love Grand Fondos. I'm just going to do Grand Fondos because that makes me happy. And so I, I kind of temporarily have given up on the other types of racing, but I found massive success through that. So in that sense, you know, I just have to be true to myself. I just have to do me. And I think that's going to lead to successes. Um, but I also realize I'm lucky that did lead to successes. A lot of people do them, you know, you do you and they don't have those successes. So in one sense, I think it's important to, to do you and to follow what you want. But I also realize that's not a guarantee. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I totally agree. I'm similar to you. I, I kind of just do what I want. And what life has continually pulled me back to over and over and over and over again <laughs> is I want I write novels. Like I just want to write novels. That's my thing. But I still don't believe that I'm going to have success. Now, maybe in six months, I'll have an agent, she'll be shopping my novel around, I'll, I'll get a book deal with a traditional publisher. And I'll look back at all of the <laughs> all of my cynicism of the past and be like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But you're right. I think that sometimes people do what feels good and feels right. And they don't have those traditional or conventional successes. It's a harsh reality. And and I'm very lucky that I I have had those successes. And and I look at you and, and I'm just hoping, like I just send out to the universe, please let Kendra also have those successes for for doing her. Thank you. That's really sweet of you. <laughs> uh, but I want to I want to be clear that I accept or will accept whatever my life path is. And what you said about making sure that you're doing something that feels like you're doing you and just doing what feels good to you. I think there can be diff- uh, like multiple layers of success and To me, a successful life, at the end of my life, I'll look back at my life and feel like it's successful if I have been able to feel good about myself in my life for my remaining time here on Earth. Because (laughs) on Earth, I make it sound like I'm going to go up in some alien spaceship eventually. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm not against the idea. (laughs) Uh, But I wasn't really happy with myself and my life for the first half of it, because while I always did try to pursue what I wanted, and I did a lot of amazing things, I was ignoring the call of my heart to live the life of an artist and live the creative life. That's my path to happiness. And I'm grateful that I have both discovered that and am able to do that now in the second half of my life, or at least thus far, we'll see how things develop. That's a huge success. And I try to remind myself of that every day, regardless of what happens in the outside world, in terms of my novel or my other endeavors, that there's a success that you can have from knowing yourself and feeling the confidence and freedom to express yourself and pursue what feels good to you to pursue. that That's a huge success, I think. I agree. And I think people can sense it when you are on that path. People can tell. You just exude an energy that people pick up on and it's magnetic. And I think last year, I was not exuding that energy because I was trying to stuff myself into this little box that wasn't me. And, and that's why it was just like this double-edged sword. One, I was doing not me. And two, people weren't picking up on a good energy. So nothing was flowing in my life. And then this year, you know, I'm just like, I'm going to do me. So that just made me happy. And now it's like the energy, I think it's like this magnet, like suddenly things are just coming to me. People are coming to me. They want to do coaching with me. And, and it's like a snowball effect. So in some sense, yes, it's a success to do you and then it, hopefully it will snowball. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I'll just add this one final comment on that um, before we sign off. This idea that when you are living, when you have integrated fully into who you are and you're sort of living from the center of your being and everything that you do, it does tend to attract success in a weird way. It's like once you give up on having those successes, kind of like you're discovering with your coaching, once you gave up on trying to be the winningest cyclist in all the coolest races, suddenly you're overflowing with coaching requests. Yeah. And I'm winning. So. <laughs> and you're winning. Yeah, <laughs> and you're and winning. winning so yeah. And that's proven itself time and time again, not just with coaching and cycling, but in my life, the moment I give up on something and let go, that's when it comes to me and it's crazy. And you can't force that giving up. Like I've tried to give up because I know the rules are if you give up, it comes, but you can't like it has to be a natural giving up. So true. So true. That's so funny. It's it's right. Like you really do have to make that hard break. Uh, like, yeah. And, and it's it's just and it's very difficult to do. Oh, yeah. It's very difficult. It really is because it's a low point when you give up you've almost reached this low point of like, you've given up on your dreams. And then suddenly, the minute you give up on them, they come true. Right. I mean, that happened to me recently. Uh, I had a fairly small failure, but a failure nonetheless, in in terms of my my novel. And I entered this really deep, dark, like, totally giving up. You remember this, this happened like a few weeks ago. Yeah, I was, (laughs) it was not good. Uh, But you know, even though it sucks to be in that darkness, that dark place, or at least that's how it manifests for me, I knew that I would come out the other side and then I would have a breakthrough. It's always darkest before the dawn type of idea. And sure enough, after I had worked through that and gotten through it, I sat down and actually wrote out the entire plot of my novel and finalized everything. Like it all just came. And lo and behold, like this week, I'm going to finish it, like finish, finish it. After seven drafts, it's totally done. It's ready. I just have one more draft of line edits to do, which is the little detail stuff. And that's it. It's done. I mean, it's done. Like uh, done the end done. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. Huge congratulations. Thank you. It, it, it feels weird. <laughs> I don't know how, to, how else to describe it. It has been four years in the making. So maybe this is my four year success, just like you're having your four year success. Oh, I hope so. Fingers crossed. That'd be amazing truly like that you know I have certain things I want to happen in life and that that is one of the huge ones is success for you well me too (laughs) (laughs) and now that I have brought this conversation successfully back around to myself (laughs) (laughs) I think I think we can sign off (laughs) okay well thank you very much this is awesome 
Yeah, it was great. It was great to have you back on. And uh, I, I hope to have you back on in the future. Maybe we can make this a regular, regular bit. That'd be great. All right. See you later. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation between Jill and me. I'll be back next Friday with one of my regular episodes. See you then. Bye.